All William Edward Hickman needed to pick up 12-year-old Marion Parker early from Mount Vernon Junior High School one day in December of 1927 was a pleasant personality and a friendly smile. Hickman was not the girl's father. He was not a relative. He was not a friend of the family. He was a virtual stranger, but he came armed with a fictitious name, Mr. Cooper, and a persuasive story. He told the secretary in the office, a woman named Naomi Britton, that he was there to pick up Marion because her father had just been in a horrific car accident. He had been rushed to the hospital and they weren't even sure if he was going to pull through and he was calling for his daughter. Ms. Britton stood up and walked over to speak with this man. She noted that he was very nicely dressed. He was polite and well-spoken, though she was pretty worried and concerned for Marion's dad and whether or not he was going to pull through. It caused her to be preoccupied with the sudden terrible news. Ms. Britton tried to locate the school's principal, Cora Freeman, but she was so frazzled and had a hard time locating any of the school administrators who would be the ones to decide whether or not Marion Parker was to be released from school to this man. Eventually, Miss Britton found a teacher named Mary Holt. So Miss Holt came to the office to discuss this matter with the man who called himself Mr. Cooper. He explained to Miss Holt and Miss Britton that he was a colleague of Marion's father over at First National Bank. He offered up the bank's phone number if they wanted to verify the purpose of his visit to the school and his instructions to pick up Marion. The man was so easygoing and relaxed that the two women really didn't even give it a second thought and had Marion brought to the office from class. The man brought himself down to Marion's level and explained who he was and why he was there. He reassured the little girl that everything was going to be okay and he would take her to see her dad right away. The man walked out of the office and off the school grounds with Marion in tow. This case is going to bring about a couple of firsts. The first time, the idea of censoring violence in films being shown at the local cinemas, and the very first time a criminal defendant would plead innocent by reason of insanity in a California trial. In this 179th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of California's very first insanity plea. I want to thank you as always for listening to and enjoying this podcast. This is a completely independent, ad-free, one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can help support this show. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps give us more visibility and pushes us up the charts. You can also recommend us in true crime fan groups on Facebook as well as on Twitter and Instagram. And if you can't get enough of California Dreaming, you can subscribe to our Patreon, where you can not only access dozens of full-length exclusive bonuses for as little as $1 a month, you will also be helping to keep the podcast afloat. We are currently in the middle of telling the story of Missy Avila 
and her tragic death back in 1985. It is a case that some of you have probably heard of before. It's turning into quite the multi-part series because it is so full of so many details. So this week, I'd like to thank Kat D., Ashley D., Cindy, and Mally G. for joining Patreon, and Catherine S., Aaron S., Tiffany C., and Natasha for either raising their pledge or joining the annual option. And if Patreon isn't your thing, but you would still like to contribute to supporting this podcast, you can make a one-time donation through our PayPal using the email californiadreaming at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for helping me keep the lights on over here, as well as the puppies well-fed and given lots and lots of treats. I promise that is exactly where your money is going. And one last thing, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains details involving crimes committed against a child. The details are extremely graphic in nature and may not be suitable for some listeners. So listener discretion is strongly advised. All right, let's get this story started. The year that all of this took place that we're going to talk about today was 1927. And for those of you who aren't very fond of these older historical cases, this one is a little bit different because it's kind of similar to a lot of the crimes that we talk about today, which I found surprising. It just wasn't so different. So I think all of you or most of you are going to appreciate this story. This time period was sandwiched in the middle of the period after the end of World War I and just a couple of years before the beginning of the Great Depression. So it was a good time. California was thriving particularly well, due in part to so many people flocking to the Golden State that boasted a healthy economy and a diverse cross-section of people from all different ethnic backgrounds and walks of life. Affordable single-family homes were cropping up everywhere, especially in and around Los Angeles. It was just a really booming time, and the outlook for the future was hopeful and optimistic. And the Parker family, who we're going to talk about today, had set down roots in a Los Angeles community called Manhattan Place. People flocking to Southern California dreamed of living in an area like that, inviting homes with lovely landscaping, and best of all, it was safe. It was affluent, and its residents thought that they were immune to the criminal element. Everyone was neighborly, everyone knew one another, and felt comfortable and at ease in their homes. But the events of December 15th, 1927 shattered their idyllic utopia when word spread that 12-year-old Marion Parker had been kidnapped. Though there are some sources out there that stated that the date all of this began was December 19th, 
And I think the confusion has to do with the fact that the correspondences being sent by the kidnapper would take a couple of days to be delivered to the family, so it's easy to kind of mix up the dates. But anyway, the date is December 15th, the day that this young girl was taken. To make matters worse, the staff at Marion's Junior High School allowed her to be picked up by a man who claimed to have been a colleague of her father's, and they didn't even question it or check up on it. He was just polite, he was well-dressed, he was well-spoken, and nothing appeared to be nefarious about this young man. But they were wrong, and Marion was handed off to a stranger, a stranger who intended to kidnap Marion and demand a ransom from her family. The day after Marion was kidnapped, her family began receiving ransom letters several of them demanding $1,500 in gold certificates. When you put that into the inflation calculator, that comes out to more than $22,000 today. There was more than one letter. Some of them were titled Fate, Death, and the Fox. And some of the words were written in Greek. Marion's dad decided to follow the instructions that he was given in the ransom letters, and he wanted to hand over the gold certificates in order to get his daughter back, who did, by the way, have a twin sister named Marjorie and one older brother. Per the instructions in the ransom letters, Perry Parker drove his car to the designated location and parked it facing the wrong way on the opposite side of the street. He sat in his car with the gold certificates and waited for the kidnapper. As he sat there anxiously waiting, a black car appeared, driving slowly up the street towards his parked car. What happened next, I will get to a little bit later. At this time, the state of California had a set limit that a reward could be offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of any wanted criminal, and that limit was $2,500. Because this crime had been so brazen, and for a time, it would be considered one of the most unforgettable crimes in California history. When the LAPD had provided the Lieutenant Governor of California at the time, Buren Fitz, some details about the case, Fitz turned to the then-governor of California, Clement Young, to consider there to be an exception made in Marion's case when it came to the $25,000 limit. So Governor Young, feeling the anger and pressure from the public to do something about this case and to deflect the negative publicity off of himself and direct it towards the LAPD instead and those who were in charge of the investigation, sent out a press release That included the lieutenant governor's telegram to him about an increase in the reward. And it read in part, Without a doubt, the case of Marion Parker is an atrocious crime. The state of California has been stirred as never before, and in view of the nature of the crime, and most strongly urge, if legally possible, that the state immediately offer a thoroughly substantial reward for the apprehension and conviction of the criminal. Suggest that the reward be divided, one half for information leading to the arrest and conviction, and the other half for the actual arrest. 
Authorities feel that the crime was undoubtedly committed by degenerates, and in view of the frequency of these crimes recently in Los Angeles on other children, and the fact that the criminal is still at large, and the danger from their activities, the state should be the first one to initiate and contribute its share to the apprehension of these degenerates for the future protection of its children. Unquestionably, the offer of a substantial reward by the state of California and the cooperation with local agents will be one of the most effective weapons in the hands of police and authorities. And dreamers, before I go on, I do need to mention that the majority of the information in this episode comes from a book written about this case entitled Not Just Evil and was written by David Wilson. While I will be conveying the story to you in my own words, some of the transcriptions of the correspondences and documents related to this case come directly from the book and the extensive research that Wilson put into compiling this information. And so began a nationwide search for Marion Parker's kidnapper. But from the onset, controversy followed this case and would continue to do so as time went on. First off, when it became public knowledge that Marion had been allowed to leave her school with a man who claimed to have been a co-worker of her father's, and nobody at the school bothered to take the time to verify that this man was who he said he was, much less check to see if her father had in fact been in a terrible car accident and was barely clinging to life, the public became enraged. People in the community were furious that it was so easy for this person to just show up with some nice clothes on and some polite words and be able to walk out of the school, no questions asked, with a child. And what's more is Marion was a twin. Why didn't anyone question the man as to why he was only picking up one of the girls and not both of them? Did the office staff just not think anything of it? Because that's what it seems like. Did they even know that Marion was a twin to begin with? Or were they just so distracted by the news of this car accident? The public simply could not imagine that this man was able to walk off with Marion He was unarmed. He made no type of threats. He didn't use any kind of force. He just gave them a story and they handed Marion over to him and off she went to meet whatever fate her kidnapper had intended for her. Right out of her school where she should have been kept under the watchful eye of the staff and administrators. A place where Marion is supposed to be safe. A statement from the then Los Angeles County School District Superintendent, Susan Dorsey, was released to the press that day and was printed in the Los Angeles Times. And it read, Miss Holt, she was the teacher that the office secretary, Miss Britton, had asked to come to the office and talk to the man. Miss Holt had no authority to excuse any child from school. That is done by our vice principal and then only at the request of the child's parents or guardian. Because in this case there appeared to be an emergency when the man rushed in and claimed that there had been an accident and the child's father was calling for her. I talked to Ms. Holt and am satisfied that I would have acted as she did if I were confronted with the same circumstances. 
At the time, the vice principal, who is the person in authority to excuse a child from class, was busy with the Christmas program and could not be reached in the few minutes that elapsed. The fact that nothing has ever befallen our school children in the past is evidence in and of itself that they are safeguarded as humanly possible. Well, so we get the idea here that the actions of the school staff and administration that allowed Marion to be handed over to her kidnapper are being defended by the superintendent. And as you can imagine, that did not go over well with an already angry and aggravated community. Parents were outraged with her siding with the school staff, even going so far as to saying that she would do the same thing if it was her making the same decision, and then qualifying it all by saying that nothing like this had ever happened before. And that is proof enough that they do, in fact, keep children safe under their supervision. Well, clearly they didn't, and the public's trust and confidence in the school system dropped significantly as did attendance at schools statewide. So the person in charge of this case is the district attorney, and it was a man named Asa Keys, A-S-A. I'm not really sure how that's pronounced. And truth be told, his primary interest in Marion's case was not necessarily centered on making sure that her kidnapper was brought to justice, It's more about how Marion's case is going to further his political aspirations. He knew immediately that this was exactly the type of sensational case that was going to be perfect for him to exploit when it came to election time, as he would be running for district attorney again. Prior to Marion's kidnapping for almost two months, Asa Keys had been up to his eyeballs in a case known at the time as the C.C. Jolian Petroleum Ponzi scam. The problem with that was it did involve some very influential individuals who were running this Ponzi in Southern California, and it was at the time the biggest scheme of its kind in the state. What was happening was stocks were being sold off to unsuspecting investors who had no idea that those stocks were virtually worthless. While the district attorney thought that prosecuting this case or trying to prosecute it could bring about a boost for him in terms of his political career, the flip side of that is that the perpetrators of the Ponzi scheme themselves were important and influential people who could also have an effect on his political career, both positively and negatively. In fact, much to Asa Keys' surprise, the people running the Ponzi scheme were quite openly supportive of him, referring to him as having one of the most honest and upstanding reputations when it came to politicians. As it would turn out, those things said about him by the Julian Petroleum Company were not true because the following year in 1928, Asa Keys would be convicted of accepting a bribe from said petroleum company and sentenced to five years in prison. Five years later, however, he was pardoned by then-Governor James Rolfe. So focusing on Marion's case really didn't do him any favors in the long run, But at least he tried, and I suppose the community would have appreciated the extra attention given to apprehending Marion's kidnapper. 
So for the time being, District Attorney Keyes set aside all the paperwork that he had on the petroleum scandal to make room for Marion's case. Then he formed what I suppose we would call today a task force. Assembled along with Keyes was the chief of the Los Angeles Police Department at the time, James Davis, the chief of detectives, Herman Klein, and between them they chose two lead detectives to work on the case, a pair of investigators with a combined wealth of experience, Detective Dick Lucas and Detective Harry Raymond. I know that there are a lot of names to remember here, and you might not necessarily have to keep them all straight in your head, but I will regularly label them with their titles in order for all of us to keep them straight. So the district attorney wanted and needed the best men that he could find on this case. And well, there were women working in the LAPD at the time, but it had been less than two decades since the first female was hired into the LAPD. So there were just so few with not as much experience. So they'd have to settle for the men. Keyes wanted this case cleared because of the fear that had overtaken the citizens of Los Angeles. And of course, he wanted to further his political agenda. So in order to make sure as much time and resources could be diverted into the investigation, he even set up an area in a small room with some beds in order for the detectives to take naps whenever they needed to keep them working around the clock. As for Marion's parents, her father Perry and her mother Geraldine, they of course are living a parent's worst nightmare. One school secretary, Ms. Naomi Britton, called the Parkers to check if they wanted to pick up Marion's twin sister, Marjorie, if they were going to come retrieve her as well. Perry Parker was confused. He had no clue as to what Miss Britton was talking about. He did not send for Marion. He hadn't asked a co-worker to pick her up from school. And since he answered the phone and was talking as if everything was okay, it was abundantly clear that he had not been in a terrible car accident and he was not barely clinging to life. As the gravity of what Miss Britton was saying to him over the phone began to sink in, Perry realized that something dreadful was happening and then he needed to fill his wife in on what was happening too. When he broke the news to Geraldine, she passed out. In the days and weeks that followed, Geraldine was attended to by doctors and some of her friends. They kept her company as she struggled physically, mentally, and emotionally over this kidnapping. At the same time, Perry was tasked with trying to work with police as best he could to try and identify the man who kidnapped his daughter. The pressing matter at the time was to try and figure out who the kidnapper was to identify this man and go from there. The kidnapper seemed to be somewhat familiar with the family, so they questioned Perry extensively in an attempt to see if somehow he knew who this person might be, someone from his past or someone he knew in passing. After the school called Marion's dad to ask about whether or not they wanted to send Marjorie home too, Perry received the first communication from the kidnapper by way of telegram. It read, Do positively nothing till you receive a special delivery letter. And this telegram was signed, Marion Parker and George Fox. 
The police put a great deal of pressure on Marion's dad to try and remember anybody that he had ever known by the name of George Fox. Perry insisted that he had no idea who George Fox was. If he had, he was fairly certain he would have remembered the name, but he didn't. And for some reason, the police really didn't believe Perry. And I don't know why they didn't believe him. I don't know why they would think this kidnapper would be using his real name in his correspondences. The kidnapper wasn't even using the same name that he gave at Marion's school while speaking to the secretary. But the police wanted to check up on this name, George Fox. They contacted their headquarters and asked to have their records of known criminals checked to see if they had a George Fox on file. And nothing turned up. There was a lead detective who had been there at the onset of Marion's case, the moment her dad contacted police when he was informed that his daughter had been picked up from school by a stranger. And that was Chief Inspector Joseph Taylor. The task force formed shortly thereafter, so they were in a sense working in tandem, District Attorney Keyes and Chief Inspector Taylor. They were also both poised to point the finger of blame towards one another if Marion's case went unsolved. The district attorney's team of detectives had actually started to hone in on Marion's dad, Perry Parker, based purely on the manner in which he was reacting to the pace the case was going, which was very slow. This aggravated Perry because he did not think that they were getting any closer to figuring out who it was that kidnapped his daughter. So this aggravation is what caused the detectives to add Perry to their list of suspects and I don't think that they had much of a list to begin with. But Chief Inspector Taylor, he seemed to know what he was doing more so than the district attorney's detectives, Lucas and Raymond. Taylor had the Parker home phones tapped and had informed every Western Union location to call the police if anyone was trying to send a telegram to the Parker house. Unfortunately, a pair of telegrams along with a letter that was special delivered, had already been sent before Western Union employees had been notified to be on the lookout. I already mentioned the first telegram the Parkers received. The second one came 45 minutes later and it read, Marion secure, use good judgment, interference with my plans, dangerous, signed Marion Parker and George Fox. Police investigated the address listed on the telegram and found that it did not exist. While Inspector Taylor was speaking to Marion's dad at his home about the ransom, there was a knock at the door. It was a letter being sent by special delivery from the post office, the one that they had been expecting per the telegram. This letter read, Death, P.M. Parker, use good judgment. You are the loser. Do this. Secure $75 $20 gold certificates, U.S. currency $1,500 at once. Keep them on your person. Go about your daily business as usual. Leave out police and detectives. Make no public notice. Keep this affair private. Make no search. Fulfilling these terms with the transfer of the currency will secure the return of the girl. Failure to comply with these requests means that no one will ever see the girl again, except the angels in heaven. The affair must end one way or the other within three days, 72 hours. Fate. 
If you want aid against me, ask God, not man. In addition to that, the kidnapper had Marion write a note to her parents in her own handwriting so that they would know it was her. Marion wrote, Dear Daddy and Mother, I wish I could come home. I think I'll die if I have to be like this much longer. Won't someone tell me why this is happening to me? Daddy, please do what this man tells you or he will kill me if you don't. Your loving daughter, Marion Parker. The letter was very concerning for Marion's dad because he knew that he had already gone against one of the demands in the letter to not contact police. In fact, it was the first thing that he did. He was so upset by the letter that police almost thought it was a put-on in order to divert attention away from himself as a suspect. However, Perry insisted that he did not care if they caught the kidnapper or not. He didn't care how much the ransom was for. All he wanted was to get his daughter back. He was prepared to get the gold certificates that the kidnapper wanted, and it turned into a very heated argument with police because they did not want Marion's dad taking matters into his own hands. Eventually, Perry was able to convince the detectives to just let him fulfill the ransom demand just as the kidnapper had instructed. So he did what the note said to do. He went about his day as if everything was normal. He got the gold certificates in the amount of $1,500, and when the workday was done, he went home and waited for the next instructions. The phone finally rang just after 8 p.m. The caller stated, I am the fox. Have you the money? Perry Parker said that he did. The caller then said, I am some distance away. I will phone you again in a few minutes and give you your instructions. A half hour later, the phone rang again. The caller said, I am the fox. Give me your word as a Christian gentleman that you will not try to trap me. Perry was unable to answer because the caller then started in on his next set of instructions. He was told to leave his house by car and drive a few miles to a specific intersection, and he was to come alone. Dim your lights and don't bring police if you want to see your child alive. Perry did as he was told and was hopeful that he was going to get his daughter back that evening but he waited for hours and the kidnapper never showed up. Eventually, he drove home without his daughter and his hopes were dwindling quickly. And then the following morning, things got worse. Marion's kidnapping story was the biggest headline on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Someone on the inside, inside the police department that is, had leaked the story to the press and was probably paid a pretty penny for it, too. It had happened before, and there were just some corrupt police officers who cared more about lining their pockets than the child being recovered safely. An investigation was launched within the police department, but the damage was done. The kidnapper was now going to know that the police were involved, and if Perry Parker didn't have enough problems... He was still not only the prime suspect, he was the only suspect. The investigation was going nowhere. So the next day, it was December 21st, so it has been several days since the kidnapping. 
Perry Parker received another letter via special delivery from the post office. I guess the employees at the post office simply weren't paying attention to who was coming and going, sending off these special delivery letters, despite a request from the LAPD to report anyone sending things to the Perry residence because the kidnapper was coming and going from the post office without anyone reporting it. Anyway, Perry opened the letter and it said, Death approaching near each and every hour, P.M. Parker. When I asked you over the phone to give me your word of honor as a Christian and an honest businessman to not try to trap or tip the police, you didn't answer. Why? Because those two cars carefully followed your car north on Wilton to 10th and then proceeded to circle the block on Gramercy, San Marino, Wilton, and 10th. I knew and you knew for what. One was a late model Buick and the other had disc wheels. Then later, only a few minutes, I saw a yellow Buick police car speeding towards your neighborhood. Of course, you don't know anything about these facts, and that is sarcasm. Mr. Parker, I am ashamed of you. I'm vexed and disgusted with you. With the whole damn vicinity throbbing with my terrible crime, you try to save the day by your simple police tactics. Yes, you lied and schemed to come my way, only far enough to grab me and the girl too. You'll never know how you disappointed your daughter. She was so eager to know that it would only be a short while, and then she would be free from my terrible torture, and then you messed the whole damn affair. Your daughter saw you, watched you work, and then drove away severely brokenhearted because you couldn't have her in spite of my willingness, merely because you, her father, wouldn't deal straight for her life. You're insane to betray your love for your daughter, to ignore my terms, to tamper with death. You remain reckless with death fast on its way. How can the newspaper get all of these family and private pictures unless you give them to them? Why all the quotations of your own self, Marion's twin sister, her aunt and school chums? All this continues long after you received my strict warnings. Today is the last day. I mean Saturday, December 17th, year 1927. I have cut the time to two days. Only one more time I will phone you. I will be two billion more times as cautious, as clever, and as deadly from now on. You have brought this on yourself, and you deserve it and worse. A man who betrays his love for his daughter is a second Judas Iscariot, many times more wicked than the worst modern criminal. And for those of us who are not biblical scholars, the name Judas Iscariot is used to describe someone who has betrayed another. In the Bible, he was known for betraying Jesus by disclosing where he was for 30 pieces of silver. He brought men to arrest Jesus and identified him by kissing him and calling him master. And Jesus was subsequently arrested, tried, and executed. So the kidnapper's letter continued. If by 8 p.m. today you have not received my call, then hold a quiet funeral service at your cemetery without the body on Sunday the 18th. Only God knows where the body of Marion Parker would rest in this event. Not much effort is needed to take her life. She may pass out before 8 p.m. 
so I could not afford to call you and ask for your $1,500 for a lifeless mass of flesh. I am base and low, but won't stoop to the depth, especially to an ungrateful person. When I call, if I call, I'll tell you where to go and how to go. So if you go, don't have your friends following. Pray to God for forgiveness for your mistake last night. Become honest with yourself and your blood. If you don't come in this good, clean, honest way and be square with me, that's all. Fate Fox, if you want aid against me, ask God, not man. Also included with this note was a passage handwritten by Marion Parker again, which read, Dear Daddy and Mother, Daddy, please don't bring anyone with you today. I'm sorry for what happened last night. We drove right by the house and I cried all the time last night. If you don't meet us this morning, you'll never see me again. Love to all, Marion Parker. P.S. Please, Daddy, I want to come home this morning. This is your last chance. Be sure to come by yourself or you won't see me again. Well, as it turned out, Perry Parker had no idea that he was being followed by the police when he tried to get the ransom to the kidnapper. From there, the lead detectives, Lucas and Raymond, they didn't want to pay the ransom anymore. But Marion's dad wanted another chance to do it and to do it without the police tailing him. Begrudgingly, the first detective on the case, Chief Inspector Joseph Taylor, he told Perry that he could go ahead and try to pay the ransom a second time, and this time he promised that there would be no police anywhere near the meeting place. So all Perry could do now was sit and wait for the kidnapper's call. And while he was waiting, another letter arrived at the house. It had two parts, and the kidnapper was starting to sound a bit incoherent. They read, Signed, Marion Parker, Death. P.M. Parker, please recover your senses. I want your money rather than kill your child. But so far you give me no other alternative. Of course you want your child, but you'll never get her by notifying the police and causing all of this publicity. I feel, however, that you started the search before you received my warning, so I am not blaming you for the bad beginning. Remember the three-day limit and make up for the lost time. Dismiss all authorities before it's too late. I'll give you one more chance. Get that money, by the way I told you, and be ready to settle. I'll give you a chance to come across and you or Marion dies. Be sensible and use good judgment. You can't deal with a mastermind like a common crook or a kidnapper. Fox Fate. If you want aid against me, ask God, not man. The second letter read, P.M. Parker, Fox is my name. Very sly, you know. Set no traps. I'll watch for them. And I be able to handle inside guys. Even your neighbor, Isidore B., you know that when you play with fire, there is cause for burns. Now W.J. Burns and his shadows either remember that Get this straight. Remember that life hangs by a thread and I have a Gillette ready and able to handle the situation. In Dreamers, the kidnapper is referring to a Gillette razor, which was incidentally founded 26 years before this story took place in 1901. 
He continued, do you want the girl or the $75-$20 gold certificates U.S. currency? You can't have both, and there's no other way out. Believe this and act accordingly. Before the day's over, I'll find out where you stand. I am doing a solo, so figure on meeting the terms of Mr. Fox or else. Fate. If you want aid against me, ask God, not man. And then towards the bottom of the letter, it read, Death, death final chance terms. 1. Have $1,500, gold certificates U.S. currency. 2. Come alone and have no other knowing or knowing of the place of meeting. 3. Bring no weapons of any kind. 4. Come in the Essex coach, license number 594-995. Stay in the car. If I call, your girl will still be living. When you go to the place of meeting, you will have a chance to see her. Then, without a second's hesitation, you must hand over the money. The slightest pause or misbehavior on your part at this moment will be tragic. Seeing your daughter will take a moment. My car will then slowly drive away from yours about a block. You wait and then I stop. I'll let the girl out. Then come and get her while I drive away and I won't go slow this time. Do not attempt to follow when you get the girl. Be sure and wait till my car pulls up ahead and stops and you see me put the girl out before you start up. Don't act excited or think I will run away with Marion. I will do as I say. And I hope to God that you will have enough sense to do exactly as I have said. Well, it's not to worry me if you blunder again. I have certainly done my part to warn and advise you. Fate Fox Shortly after those letters arrived, Perry Parker received the next phone call from the kidnapper. He told Perry that this was going to be his final opportunity to ensure his daughter will not be killed but he gave no further instructions and abruptly hung up the phone. An hour passed when the phone finally rang again and it was the kidnapper. Perry was issued very specific instructions. And yet, despite all this, District Attorney Asa Keys still considered Marion's dad to be the prime suspect here. And just as the police didn't trust Perry, Perry didn't trust them either. As he headed towards the designated meeting place, he kept looking back to see if police were following him, even though they promised they wouldn't. He didn't see anyone, and finally, he arrived at the place where he was to make the ransom payment. The driver pulled up alongside Perry's car, and because he was parked in the opposite direction, the drivers of each car were right next to each other. There was a moment where everything and everyone was silent, when suddenly the kidnapper reached for a double-barreled shotgun that he had with him, stuck it out his window, and pointed it directly at Perry's face. The kidnapper had a mask covering his face. He was the first to speak. Do you see this gun? Perry answered, I see it. As he struggled to look inside the kidnapper's vehicle to try and get a glimpse of his daughter, he thought he could see her seated in the passenger seat. The kidnapper spoke again. Did you bring the money? Perry answered, yes, here it is. He held up a stack of gold certificates. The kidnapper demanded, give it to me. 
But Perry replied, Where is my daughter? The kidnapper said, Right here, asleep. It was dark out, with the dim street lamps barely shining in the windows of the car. He was almost able to see what looked like his daughter's face right there in the passenger seat. The kidnapper took the gold certificates and began counting them. As Perry sat there waiting and hoping for this man to give him back his daughter and this nightmare would finally be over with. While he waited for what was to come next, Perry was certain that he caught a glimpse of his little girl glancing over at him. Finally, out of desperation, Perry asked, Would you please give me my daughter back? The kidnapper assured him that yes, he will, just as he said he would. And he told Perry just to wait patiently for a minute. The kidnapper began slowly driving his car away, and Perry asked, Where are you going? How far? The kidnapper answered, Not too far. Perry watched and waited as the man slowly drove his car about 200 feet or 60 meters up the dark street. Perry had a hard time seeing what the kidnapper was actually doing. But then he heard a car door slam shut and the kidnapper drove away. Perry got out of his car and hurried up the street towards the small figure he could barely see laying on the ground. And there is nothing in this world that could have prepared anyone for what Perry saw as he drew closer. All hopes of this coming to a happy end were dashed. The child on the ground was his daughter, but she was dead. And parts of her were missing. The medical examiner, Dr. A.F. Wagner, was tasked with performing the autopsy on what was left of Marion. When he removed the sheet from the child's body, he knew that the images of what he was looking at would be burned into his memory for the rest of his life. Not only had this child's body been completely desecrated, this child was his neighbor. Dr. Wagner lived right across the street from the Parker family. He knew them, and he knew them well. And the doctor hadn't even received the news that the neighbor's child had been kidnapped and murdered when he lifted the sheet off of her. He got the news right then and there on that cold metal table. His memories suddenly flashed back to when Marion and her twin sister were just toddlers. He enjoyed sitting out on the stoop and watching the girls play with their older brother. Dr. Wagner felt his body go weak. He thought he was going to pass out from the sight of his beautiful little neighbor. But after a few seconds, he managed to pull himself together and do what he was there to do. The most difficult part of this autopsy at this point was the fact that more than half of Marion's body was missing. In all his years as a medical examiner, Dr. Wagner had never seen anything like this, nor did he ever see anything like it again. He did what he could and went home for the day. Little did he know that his nightmare was to be continued the following morning. Dr. Wagner was still at home the next morning when he was summoned to return to the morgue immediately. When he arrived, there were six small parcels waiting for him. The parcels were discovered in Elysian Park, 
Each one of them was neatly wrapped in newspaper and held together with black string. One by one, he opened each of the packages, and each one contained the missing pieces of Marion's body. When Dr. Wagner was finished examining all of the body parts, he completed his inquest, and that report is outlined in the book, Not Just Evil. Dr. Wagner determined that the body had been mutilated post-mortem. His report and subsequent testimony read as follows. And be warned, the details are graphic. On the first evening, I found part of the body consisting of the body, consisting of the head, the trunk down to an inch and a half below the navel, with the arms intact, but the forearms disarticulated at the elbows. I examined that part of the body. I found that there was also a cut made by a knife on the left, on the top of the left shoulder. This cut was two and a half inches long. There were a few superficial marks around this cut, especially between the cuts and the head, which I could not determine at the time as to their cause. They were merely superficial marks. There were no other marks upon the body at all. There was no discoloration to the face. There were no contusions about the neck. The tongue and eyes were normal, except the eyelids had been raised by a wire running through the hair and brought back and fastened to a ribbon. In other words, dreamers, Marion's eyes were fixed open and held open by these wires to make it look like she was alive. I examined the organs of the body that were there, the lungs, the heart, and the trachea. I found everything without evidence of contusions or blows. That also included the stomach, the liver, and the kidneys were all intact, all in perfectly normal, healthy shape. On the morning of the next day, the other parts of the body had been brought in in separate pieces, each arm, each leg from the knee down, and also the other part of the body ranging from an inch and a half below the navel down to the knees. I examined these parts very closely. I can find no evidence of contusion or abrasion or scratches upon the ankles except very slight superficial abrasions. The lower part of the body that was brought in contained the genital organs, which were all intact. Okay, so now there were some details of the condition of Marion's body that were purposely left out per the request of the LAPD and the district attorney. And it's for the same reasons that key details are often kept close to the vest nowadays, to ensure that if there are some confessions that investigators will be able to ensure the validity of that confession, if the suspect is able to reveal details about the crime known only to law enforcement and to the individual who committed it. And the detail that was left out of Dr. Wagner's report was information regarding two items, a shirt with the name Gerber either printed or written on it, and a towel that had Bellevue Arms Apartments printed on it. Both of these items had been stuffed into Marion's disemboweled torso. Even though Dr. Wagner had told his inquest to a grand jury and that information was supposed to have been kept confidential, the press caught wind of the grisly details within hours of his testimony, and Marion's murder became front-page news across the country by the next day. Not only was the public salivating for more of the gory details as much as they could get, 
The demand for this savage killer to be apprehended intensified immensely. There was a palpable fear that this killer would strike again, and because of the increasing demand for information and for the killer to be identified and captured, the media went into a feeding frenzy. On the night that Marion's mutilated body was delivered to her father, he was paralyzed with grief and incapable of giving any sort of official statement to investigators. The first police officer who arrived at the meeting place where Marion lay on the ground, much of her missing. His name was George Contreras, and he provided his recollection of what happened. It read, I walked up to Mr. Perry Parker and asked him where the little girl was, and he said, There she is, sitting in the car. Go and look at her. God bless her little heart. And dreamers, I'm assuming that Perry Parker had picked Marion up off the ground and placed her in his car. He could talk no more, and a friend of his arrived to take him away. So I immediately went over to the car. The little girl was sitting up with her little head leaned over to the right, and the first thing that attracted my attention was the thread that was fastened over each eyelid and across the forehead and right back over the head and down the neck and sewed into a white piece of linen that went around the neck. I lowered the little cloth and there was a cut there, so I didn't touch it anymore on account of getting finger marks on it. She had, as I say, this linen around her neck and a sweater on, buttoned up, and sat in that position. I made an examination and lifted the body up and told Inspector Joseph Taylor that all of the body wasn't there. He came over and made an examination and talked to Perry Parker and searched the automobile and searched the block. When the coroner came, I carried the body out of the automobile and put it in the wagon and we came on down to the morgue with it. The LAPD had a reputation that was tarnished with charges of being inept and incompetent. So in order to turn that perception around, they really wanted to solve Marion's murder as quickly as possible. In an attempt to cut the killer off before he got too far, roadblocks had been erected, every car was being checked, and the roads going in and out of Mexico were closed off. Unfortunately, Perry Parker could barely give the details, and the ones that he did provide were so general they were barely useful. But it was all hands on deck. Every officer was working overtime, interviewing as many men that sort of met Perry Parker's vague description. Some were held for further questioning, and a handful were detained for at least one day while alibis were being verified. When the LAPD finally gave a statement to the media, they had to concede that they didn't have any strong suspects or persons of interest. But in doing so, they placed the blame for that on Marion's father, Perry, for being unable to provide an adequate description of the man who delivered his dead, mutilated daughter to him. William Edward Hickman spent all of his free time going to the cinema. It was his comfort. It was his escape. It was the reason why he left Kansas and made his way to Los Angeles. It was his obsession with movies. But in order to see these movies, it cost him 25 cents per day, which he did not have. So he resorted to petty crime in order to get the money to pay the admission price. 
This would buy him two movies, one cartoon, and something new that theaters were doing. They were showing the news. Kind of odd, right? They'd show the local news stories of the day with a disembodied voice filling the theater reporting on the various crimes being committed in the community. Kind of ironic that Hickman was sitting there watching the reports about things that he might have committed himself in order to pay to sit there and watch it. Every week, in order to feed his obsession, Hickman needed to come up with $3.25, and in order to get that, he resorted to crime. A couple hours after Hickman had murdered and mutilated Marion Parker, he went to a movie theater. He waited in line to get a ticket to see a film that was featured there that night. He tried not to draw attention to himself so no one would suspect what he had done. The thing is, he was the only person that knew at that point that the girl was dead. In his book, Not Just Evil, David Wilson described Hickman's appearance. He was not very tall, and he was thin. Overall, just average looking. He had dark hair, and it was short and neat. It was naturally curly, but he spent time combing it out to appear straight in an attempt to change his look as to not be recognized. But again, at this point in time, nobody was aware that a murder had taken place. At most, maybe the staff at Marion's school would have been able to provide a description of him as Marion's kidnapper. But at that time, as far as anyone knew, the little girl was still alive. Hickman went to the movies as often as he could as a means of escaping reality. On this particular day, the reality he was running from were the things that he had done to little Marion's body. Sitting there in that theater, Hickman later admitted that he was starting to feel a tremendous amount of sadness about what he had done. In fact, he broke down in tears during the film. When the movie was over, Hickman needed to get back home and get Marion ready for the exchange of the ransom. He knew he needed to somehow make it appear as though Marion wasn't dead yet so he would be able to get the $1,500. So he figured that he would be able to place her body in his car in a way where she could be sitting upright so it would look like she was still alive and well. In order to alleviate the blame for what he had done off of himself, in his own mind, Hickman decided that Marion was dead as a result of her father's own actions. Hickman had ordered Perry Parker to keep the police out of this or else Marion would die. And Perry failed to follow his explicit instructions and he realized this when he attempted the first exchange and saw that Perry was being followed by police. Marion was still very much alive then. Because Hickman was betrayed and he had made the threat to kill her if police became involved, he had to follow through on his threat. But he still wanted to try to get that $1,500, which he was able to successfully do the very next night. Going to the movies had been an addiction for Hickman. And the fact that he now had all of this money, he was going to be able to go every single day without having to commit any crimes for quite some time. That was his plan, just to go to the movies as many times as possible with the ransom money. He initially had no intention of leaving Southern California. 
It had become the epicenter of the entertainment industry. It is what drew him out there in the first place. But the search for Marion's killer had intensified to a point where Hickman began thinking that he might just have to pick up and move someplace else. Police had swarmed the area where the exchange of the money had taken place for miles in every direction. Hundreds of extra LAPD officers were out scouring the neighborhoods, all of the houses and all of the businesses for days, all with no luck. One particular place of interest was the Bellevue Arms Apartments. Remember, a towel with that name written on it was found stuffed inside Marion's body. And even though police had already been there, they decided to go back a second time because they weren't getting any closer to catching the killer. They must have overlooked something or someone. So they talked to every single person who lived at the Bellevue Arms. They had even interviewed Hickman himself. But he managed to compose himself and did not cause any undue attention to be drawn to him. But talking to the police did spook Hickman enough to start seriously considering leaving Los Angeles. When the police were done talking to him, Hickman decided to pack up some of his personal belongings, including a couple of his guns, and he took those to a nearby storage unit that he had rented and left the items there for safekeeping. From there, he went to the movies again to try and get the visit from the police off of his mind, but he was still unable to shake this uneasy feeling that he had that the police were on to him. He decided that it was in his best interest to flee the state. When Hickman left the theater, he walked a short distance and found a gentleman he decided to rob. He wanted the man's car, but he also had a little bit of cash on him too. He ordered the man to drive him around for a little while until finally he had his hostage pull over. Hickman forced the man out of his car and drove off. He picked up the items that he had packaged from his storage unit and began driving north. The following day, when dawn came, Hickman found himself in San Francisco, California. In the meantime, investigators were taking suspects into custody and giving the media updates regularly, trying to quell the growing public fear. Marion's killing was the biggest news story across the nation. But as every suspect was able to provide solid alibis, every other update given to the media was basically the police were still at square one in the investigation. The confidence in the LAPD had already been low prior to Marion's killing, and it was only getting worse as the hours and days passed without an arrest in the case. In addition, the reward money had grown to an unprecedented amount. More than $75,000 had been collected from donations being sent from all over the United States. When I put that into the inflation calculator, it comes to more than a quarter of a million dollars today. But it wasn't helping at all to generate any good leads. And all this did was cause the police and the public to continue to believe that Marion's father was the one behind this entire kidnapping and ransom plot. The media was reporting on every single movement Perry Parker would make, and it was all being twisted into how everything he was doing was, for one reason or another, very suspicious. A 
Okay, I'm going to divide this story into a multi-part series. You won't have to wait long for the second part. I already have it written. I just need to record it. When we come back, the police are finally going to have a solid piece of evidence that will help them get closer to finding Marion's killer. So hang tight for part two. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.